If we haven't met, um, as Pastor John mentioned, my name is Dan Hahn, and my wife Sally and I have been members here uh, just coming up on a year. This is an opportunity uh, to thank you for having received us so warmly uh, into the fellowship of this church. Uh, when we moved to Papillion, we had a list of churches we wanted to visit, and Overland Hills happened to be at the top of the list, no particular reason. Uh, but as we were driving home after our first visit, I said to Sally, we don't need to visit any other churches. We found our church, and she agreed with that. And now today I have the privilege of sharing with you from God's word. Uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of a church family. We thank you also, Lord, for your word and for the Holy Spirit. We pray that your word falls on good soil this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you would turn in your Bible to the book of Genesis chapter 32. The book of Genesis chapter 32, obviously, we're going to take a break from our series through Revelation. I was willing to continue the series and uh, clear up all the questions that you may have, uh, but I assume that uh, Pastor John would politely decline. So I will be presenting uh, what is called a standalone sermon. I'm happy to do that. A problem, however, with a standalone sermon is that the congregation may not know or may not recall the background to whatever the passage under consideration. And so I want to mention six things very quickly that hopefully will bring you up to speed. Number one, this is a story about Jacob, who was the patriarch of the Jewish nation. He was the son of Isaac and the grandson of Abraham, so he had a very impressive lineage. Number two, Jacob was a very deceitful man who was willing to lie, cheat, and steal to get what he wanted. Number three, being this way, and as you might imagine, he acquired a number of enemies most especially his twin brother Esau, who had vowed to kill him. Thus, number four, Jacob was forced to go into exile to escape his brother's wrath. After 20 years, however, this is number five, after 20 years, Jacob decided to return home in the hope that his brother had forgiven him. Unfortunately, number six, while on his way back home, he received a message that his brother was coming to meet him with an army of 400 men. This freaked Jacob out. Freaked him out. And he did a number of things to try to protect his family. In doing so, this left him all alone. And this is very critical to Genesis chapter 32, that Jacob was left all alone. So let's read now, beginning at verse 22. It says, The same night he arose and took his two wives, that's another story, 
his two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. And he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. I think you'll agree that this is quite a story. And let me go on record as saying I believe that this literally happened. God took on human form which is not unprecedented in the Bible. It's called a theophany. God took on human form and physically wrestled with Jacob through the night. By dawn, Jacob was exhausted, and he went into what boxers call a clinch. That's where you just hang on. And while hanging on to God, Jacob said, I will not let go of you until you bless me. Presumably, until you promise that I can return home safely. At which point, or just prior, God partially disabled him and gave him a new name. Gave him the name Israel, which means one who wrestles with God. Again, a remarkable story. Here's what I'd like us to do this morning. First, I would like us to consider how this event was transformative in Jacob's life. How this event was transformative in Jacob's life. And then second, I would like us to consider how this story is instructive for us. How it's instructive for us. So first, Jacob. As I mentioned, Jacob was a deceitful man who got what he wanted by lying, scheming, manipulating. This is how he got through life, and he was good at it. He was utterly shameless in his lies. The epitome of his deceit was tricking his father, who was elderly at the time, and blind, tricking him into giving him the blessing that was intended for his brother Esau. This was an audacious act of dishonesty and treachery, but this is how Jacob rolled. And as I said, he was good at it. He, it worked for him. But just as Napoleon had his Waterloo, so too did Jacob. And this was it. His brother was coming after him with a huge army. Jacob was at his wit's end. He had run out of schemes. And he was scared, not just for himself, but for his family. 
there was but one thing for him to do. And it's what people have done throughout history when desperate. He cried out to God. Look at verse 9, same chapter, verse 9. This is the first record of Jacob ever praying. Verse 9, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. What do we see here? What do we see here? Well, first we see desperation. Jacob was a desperate man. Save me, he cries, for I'm afraid. Save me, God. Have you ever cried that out to God? Save me. Help me. I'm desperate. Second, we see genuine humility. He says, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. And so Jacob is not only a desperate man, he is a humble man. And these two things often go together. Finally, we see trust. We see trust in the promises of God. Twice he says, you have said. He's recalling God's promises. And he's coming to the point of trusting in those promises. Now you put all this together. You put together desperation and humility and trust, and what do you have? You have a changed man. Jacob was a changed man after this. This was the turning point in his life. He was, a, as I said, a different man after this night. Jacob was even inducted into the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, where in this chapter he is commended for his faith and for his worship of Almighty God. Of course, we're happy for Jacob that he had this transformative experience in his life. But how is this instructive for us? And what I want to suggest this morning, that this story is instructive for us in at least three ways. Number one, Jacob is a model of what to do when you find yourself in desperate circumstances. Jacob is a model of what to do when you find yourself in desperate circumstances. In other words, when you are at your wit's end, when you are out of options, when your back is against the wall, do as Jacob did. That is, cry out to the Almighty. Recall his promises. Most notably, his promise to hear you and to respond with grace and mercy. One of my memory verses this past year is Psalm 120, verse 1. It says, I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Can the scripture be any more succinct than that? I call out to the Lord in my distress, and what? He answers me. In the early 1700s, Jonathan Edwards who's commonly regarded as America's greatest theologian, 
said this to his church. You do not need to hesitate one moment, but you may run to him and cast yourself upon him. You will certainly be graciously received by him. And then I really love this next part. He told his congregation, though he is a lion, referring to Christ, though he is a lion, he will only be a lion to your enemies. He will be a lamb to you. He will be a lamb to you. Brothers and sisters, you will never find God to be too busy. You will never find God to be disinterested in your situation or your circumstance. You will never find God to be unforgiving. You will never find God to be without compassion. He loves you. He loves you passionately. So go to him. Of course, some people are hesitant to do so. It may be a pride thing. The thinking could be, I got myself into this mess. I need to be the one to get myself out of, the, out of, out of this mess. I understand that. All I can say is good luck trying to do it on your own. Another reason you may be hesitant to go to God is because of shame. You feel shame at what you had done to get yourself in the circumstance you were in. I understand that as well. But let me remind you that just as God covered Adam and Eve's shame with animal skins, so he has covered your shame, not by sacrificing an animal, but by sacrificing his own son. Jesus was crucified naked. He was fully exposed for six hours before hundreds, if not thousands of people. This was in a culture where public nakedness was a terrible humiliation. That's why the Romans did it. Jesus endured that for you. He endured that for you. So don't let shame or anything else keep you from going to God. Number two, transformative experiences with God usually come during periods of quiet solitude. Transformative experiences with God usually come during periods of quiet solitude. What do I mean by quiet solitude? I mean this, being alone with God in a quiet place for an extended period of time. Being alone with God in a quiet place for an extended period of time. Personally, I would say not less than an hour. It's quite possible with two wives and 11 children, Jacob was never alone. Never had a moment of quiet solitude until this night. Until this night. And what happened? God showed up. He showed up in power. And brothers and sisters, that is not a coincidence. That is not a coincidence. And like Jacob before this night, it's possible that some of us rarely, if ever, experience quiet solitude. 
Instead, our, our lives are bombarded with noise, if not in the foreground, at least in the background. It's just constant noise. One author has written, quiet solitude is the most challenging, the most needed, and the least experienced spiritual discipline among Christians today. Can I read that again? Quiet solitude is the most challenging, the most needed, and the least experienced spiritual discipline among Christians today. Now, why is this? I suspect most would say, well, I don't have time. I just don't have time. I'm too busy. Yet the likelihood is, is that if you and I were given more time, let's say if you and I were given a couple more hours each day, wouldn't we just fill it with the same stuff? I think many of us, many of us would. Perhaps the real issue is fear. Fear of actual intimacy of God, with God. You see, it's, it's, it's safer to keep God at arm's length where you control the agenda in terms of what you hear from God. But if you put yourself in a place of quiet solitude, then God controls the agenda. The intimacy that I am talking about through quiet solitude is incredible. Can I tell you about it? Can I testify this morning? Shortly after I retired a year ago, July, I perceived that my spiritual life had become stagnant. And I was wondering what to do about it. And the Holy Spirit reminded me of a former member of my former church, former member of my former church, who had been on some kind of spiritual retreat. I didn't know when, I didn't know where, I didn't know what happened. I, I just remembered that she had been on some kind of spiritual retreat. So I contacted her, and she told me about the Cloisters Retreat Center just west of Omaha. So I went there last December. It can be difficult to get in, but God saw to it that I got in. And while, while the... Uh, Retreat included some spiritual direction. Its main feature was total silence. Get this, from Thursday evening until Sunday afternoon. By my count, 65 hours of total silence. And I have to tell you, it was an awesome experience. Awesome. It, it, it took my, my spiritual life to, to a new level. Now, I still got a lot of problems, as some of you know, but it took my spiritual life to a new level. Let me, here's how the author I quoted earlier sums it up. Quiet solitude is an invitation to the adventure of spiritual transformation in the deepest places of your being. An adventure that will result in greater freedom and authenticity, and surrender to God. And that's my experience. That's my testimony to you this morning. 
And so I want to encourage you, whether, whether young, old, in between, I want to encourage you to include quiet solitude as a regular spiritual practice. As a regular spiritual practice. And if, if you would like some practical help on how to do that or get started, uh, I would be happy to help you. As a retiree, I have lots of time. Finally, number three. And here I may get a little personal this morning. God in his grace will sometimes require you to wrestle with him. And he may even afflict you with a limp. God in his grace will sometimes require you to wrestle with him and he may even afflict you with a limp. Now I'm using limp as a metaphor for some kind of permanent reminder of the struggle. Could be external, could be internal, could be both. But some kind of reminder, permanent reminder of the struggle. Now I'm going to start with this. Very rarely, I'm not going to say never, but very rarely, does God give us what we want or think we need at the moment we want, want it or think we need it? That's just not how God operates. Just not how God operates. Point two. Please, please follow what I'm, what I'm saying here. So God usually doesn't give us what we want at the moment we want it. Point two. In those instances where what we want or think we need is significant, is thought to be vital, is thought to be necessary, the fact that we are not getting what we want when we want it can result in a kind of wrestling match with God. Are you tracking with me? Where all of a sudden there is some tension in the relationship. There could be a feeling of disappointment. There could be a feeling of frustration. There could be anger. And often there is doubt. Are you, again, are you tracking with me? In previous generations, Christians referred to this experience as a dark night of the soul. A dark night of the soul, a period of intense struggle with God. And I have to tell you, it's not an uncommon experience. It's not an uncommon experience. The question, though, is why does God initiate these experiences? Whether you call it a dark night of the soul or a wrestling match with God, why does God initiate these experiences? What is He after? 
What is he after? What he's after is the response that he eventually received from Jacob. Where all Jacob did was throw his arms around God and hang on. You see, in that night, Jacob stopped his striving. He stopped his scheming and just submitted to God and trusted himself to God and believed God's promises. And that is what God wants from us. It's what God wants from you. So why the limp? Which I've defined as a permanent reminder of the struggle. That's the purpose. That's the purpose to remind you of the struggle and to keep you in a place of trusting dependence. So you don't just go back to the old way of you running the show. Now please bear with me, I'm going to I'm going to switch metaphors. Not supposed to do that, but I'm going to. In my late teens, early 20s, I had a condition called severe cystic acne. And what I had were these very large, very painful lesions all over my face, my neck, my chest, and my back. There was a time during college when the condition was so severe and so painful that I was hospitalized for three weeks to try to get it under control. My doctor said that if any other organ of my body were as diseased as my skin, I would be dead. I struggled with this condition for seven years during my late teens, early 20s. Finally, in 1982, the FDA approved a new drug that within three months stopped the outbreaks totally. Once I was cured, I was told about a procedure known as dermabrasion, which is basically a sanding process that would get rid of much of the scarring, particularly on my face and neck. I declined the procedure. One reason being, I wanted to remember. I wanted to remember the struggle. Because you see, it was on account of that struggle in my late teens, early 20s, that I turned to God and became a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I won't say that every time I look in the mirror that I'm reminded of the struggle. But it's not infrequent where I am. And I'm grateful to God. I'm thankful to Him. Most of you I don't know very well. Some of you I know a little. But I know that in a congregation this size, 
there are others in this room who have scars. Whether internal, external, or both. The result of some experience. Some dark night of the soul. That has left a permanent imprint on your life. If this is the case, may I be so bold as to urge you, if you haven't already, to make peace with what has happened. To make peace with what has happened and to make peace with the God who allowed it. And to trust that all the pain and the heartache and the struggle that you went through was not wasted, was not wasted, for God has used it for good. Yes, I know that I am speaking boldly this morning, but not flippantly. I know there are some people who have scars that are massive, that make my scars look like mere scratches. But still I say, make peace with what has happened. Trust God that your suffering was not wasted. God does not waste your suffering. No, sir. No, ma'am. There's a song by the Christian groups Casting Crowns entitled Scars in Heaven. The first verse is about a person mourning the death of a loved one. Every time I hear that song, I think of my son Tim who died in 2009. That's an internal scar I have. The second verse has a more universal application. It acknowledges the fact that we all have scars. They're part of life. They're a consequence of living in a fallen world. It's the chorus I want to read to you. Listen to the chorus. The only scars in heaven, they won't belong to me and you. There will be no such thing as broken, and all the old will be made new. And the thought that makes me smile now, even as the tears fall down, is that the only scars in heaven, yeah, are on the hands that hold you now. I want to make explicit what this song merely implies. The only scars in heaven will, yes, be on the hands, but also the feet, the face, and the torso of Jesus Christ. If the shroud of turn is indeed the burial cloth of Christ, he has over 120 scars on his body. 120 scars. These scars will be our reminder 
our eternal reminder of his great love and sacrifice for our salvation. To him be honor and glory and praise forever and ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us today. Thank you for recording for us this event in Jacob's life. How it transformed him, but also had for how it has the, uh, the means to change our lives and instruct us. Lord, I especially want to bring before you anyone in this room who is currently wrestling with you in some way or dealing with a, a scar that you have allowed into their life. And Lord, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would bring, bring peace and reconciliation into your relationship with him or her. Help them, Lord, to trust you, to trust you for what you allowed into their life. And now, Lord, prepare us. Prepare us to commemorate and to celebrate your sacrifice and the scars that you bore in order to bring to us salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.